Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Journalist-turned-photographer Tabitha Soren sees fingerprints as signs of life. She created a series of photographs that depict the smudges and fingerprints on our electronic devices, revealing a map to where we've been and what we've done. The photos were in an exhibition titled Surface Tension, and later this hour we'll listen back to a conversation with the artist Tabitha Soren and City Lights producer Summer Evans. First, in 2019, the art world mourned the passing of Monir Farman Farmian, an Iranian artist renowned for her beautiful geometric mirror sculptures. She's honored today by Iran's only museum dedicated to a single female artist. The first posthumous exhibition of work by Monir Farman Farmian, a mirror garden is on view through April at the High Museum. And the show includes several of her famous mirror sculptures, as well as drawings, paintings, and textiles. Joining me now via Zoom is the High Museum Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art, Michael Rooks. Michael, welcome back to City Lights. Thank you so much, Lois. It's always a pleasure to be with you on the radio. Likewise, great to have your insight. And Farman Farmian's skill with precise geometry stands out in most of her work, but it seems she combines it with organic, unpredictable textures resembling water or greenery sometimes, like in her piece Hexagon Rainbow. How are those styles reflected in the title of this exhibition, A Mirror Garden. Title of the exhibition actually refers to Monir's memoir, 
Um, it was co-written by Zara Hushmand, who will be here on February 23rd to talk about uh, Monir's life and career. But in that memoir, the artist reflects upon her childhood garden in Kazvin, Iran, where she was born in 1922. And flowers and birds, nature was something that really was a, a charm to her as a child. Later in her career, she understood that flowers have a hidden geometry, that the array of flower petals actually follows the golden ratio, that they're, they're arrayed according to the Fibonacci sequence, that there is this beautiful geometry in something in nature. And in fact, her world, she recognized, was dictated by geometry, that everything in the world around us has a kind of geometry, whether it's hidden or more obvious. This reminds me of a musical counterpart, Michael, when the physics and math of music is brought out. I think hearing you speak about the geometry of the universe and how it's reflected in this beautiful visual artwork is a reminder of how interconnected all these disciplines are. And that we get kind of hung up on that right brain, left brain stuff, don't we? Absolutely. And it uh, is something that she came to understand in a profound way when she visited this shrine in a city called Shiraz, Shiraz, Iraq. There's a shrine called Shah Shirag, and that means King of Light. And it's a, a shrine that's covered from floor to ceiling in uh, fragmented mirror tiles, tessellations of mirror. So when you walk into it, it's just this resplendent environment. And it's during that time when she started to connect the dots between sacred geometry and its symbolism and the discursivity of mathematics, which you just referred to. In addition to this kind of a revelatory experience of the transcendent as she watched people in this environment uh, integrated into this environment in infinity, you know, in, in the fragmented reflections of their form as they were engaged in prayer and supplication. So at that moment was kind of like an aha moment for her where she started to connect those dots between all of these things, in addition to poetry, Sufi poetry. So uh, from that moment, her work really took off in terms of the complexity of these mirrored sculptures. And what year was that? 1975. Ah, you make me want to read her memoir. Oh, you should. It's really beautiful. Oh, it sounds it. I mentioned in our intro that this show at the High is the first of Farman Farmian's works since she died in 2019. Michael, did the end of her life bring about renewed consideration of her legacy by the art world, or had that never diminished? It did not quite diminish toward the end of her life, because the last decade of her life, let's say, was one of the most prolific moments in her career. So she was making a lot of work. She was making ambitious and complex work at this time. And what's fascinating, remarkable, is that she started over in Iran in 2004 at the age of 82. 
you know, 82 years old, most of us would consider that like the late autumn of our lives, right? But that was the beginning, like a second beginning for her. And so she was incredibly prolific, showing her work around the world. We acquired our sculpture called Mukarnas in 2018. And that's what inspired us to think about curating this exhibition of her work, a mini survey of her work. And unfortunately, she did die the next year at the age of 96. That compelled us to double down and to revisit the idea for the exhibition to make it more of a survey, uh, demonstrating the arc of her career rather than focusing on, on this late period. Oh, but how fantastic that she was so productive. Amazing, I know, isn't it? I mean, it's incredible to think that someone can go through all of the things that this artist went through, you know, losing everything to the Islamic Revolution of 78 and 79, losing her husband in 91, and beginning over, you know, in her 80s, and being even more fierce than Mm. she ever was. it's amazing to me. You mentioned the high acquisition of her mirror sculpture, Mercarnas, and the museum also added her drawing circles and squares a couple years later. Would you tell us about each of these two pieces and the value they've represented for the high? Absolutely. Mukarnas is a mirrored sculpture. It fits into a corner, so it's a little complex, the form. It's, it doesn't hang on a flat wall. It needs two walls that, that form a perfect right angle. And the effect of this sculpture is an illusion, as if you're looking up at a ceiling. And the ceiling is what the title refers to, Mukarnas. It's a ornamental honeycomb vaulting, which is characteristic of the, of the dome ceilings and niches and corridors, uh, other ceilings in Islamic architecture. So it's something that's common, but it's incredibly complex. And it's quite an engineering feat architecturally, but also in her studio to do this. And she made this when she was 92. (laughs) It's quite large and it's resplendent. I, I can't think of another word that better describes this mirrored sculpture as just resplendence. So Makarnas in all of the work that she made in the late part of her career, serves as a bridge between these traditions in Islamic architecture and craft and decorative arts with traditions in the West of of geometric abstraction. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with High Museum curator Michael Rooks. We're discussing Munir Farman Farmion a mirror garden on view at the high through April 9th. I was intrigued with the accompanying text to Mercarnas, the technique called reverse glass painting. Is that what enables us to think we're looking up at a ceiling rather than directly at a wall? And from a distance, it almost looks like a piece of lace. It does. And that effect that you get while looking at the the sculpture and her other mirrored sculptures comes out of her involvement with this 17th century Persian technique called Aina Kari, 
which is a mirror mosaic technique. And comes back to uh, her experience at Shasharag, this shrine that's covered with fragmented mirrors. So it's, it's a technique and craft in Iran that was exclusive to men. Only men could do this. And she learned about it through her studies of Persian art, architecture, and the folk crafts of uh, ethnic minorities in Iran. So she collaborated with a master craftsman uh, in, in Iran. Uh, his name was Haji Ostad Mohammed Navid. So she made all of those mirrored sculptures during her Tehran years prior to the revolution in collaboration with Navid. Of course, she directed him and designed these sculptures, but because the technique is restricted to men, she formed this quite uh, productive and generative collaboration. It's something that she picked up in 2004 when she returned to Iran and established an even larger studio and engaged multiple craftsmen and craftswomen. She was interested in this division of labor that was gender-based in Iran for multiple reasons. And for that reason, she engaged craftswomen who, who made textiles. The rugs that we have in the exhibition were made by craftswomen. The Ainakari, the mirrored mosaic sculptures, were fabricated by men, but she res respected these traditions in her studio, which I think allowed her the kind of freedom to operate as a prominent female artist in Iran from 2004 through 2018. Yet she fled because of her life being certainly antithetical to what the religious extremists who gained control of the country were about. Why did she return? Well, she returned because she missed her homeland. She missed her culture, her language, the landscape, the traditions of Iran. It's something she never left behind. She always kept with her, even in her scaled back studio practice in New York from 79 through 2004. So these things returned in everything she produced in those years in the United States. So the return to Iran was, was a form of resistance against forgetting the past, against forgetting her culture and her language and her people and her family. And you have to remember in 2004, the diplomatic relations between the US and Iran were friendlier and that allowed her to return and to meet younger craftspeople with whom she worked and to set up this ambitious studio. And to come back to your earlier question, she was experiencing great success around the world, showing her, her work in museum exhibitions and galleries around the world. So there was a call for this work that she wanted to make. And she had this wonderful and amazing ambition to continue experimenting and making bigger and more complex things, which she could because since 1978 and 2004, technology allowed her the possibility to, to do that, to be even more ambitious in her studio. And was it because of her global reputation that she was allowed to have the freedom of women craftsmen in her studio. Did, did the government in 2004 respect that though her work was not 
sacred or necessarily exclusively honoring Islam, that she would still be safe. I don't know the, the details of the arrangements between the artist and you know the government in Tehran, but I do know that the really the only political thing about this artist was her gender. And as I mentioned, she respected the traditions and honored those traditions and, and gave dignity to the Persian peoples and their histories, in addition to those of the ethnic minorities in Iran. And that was recognized by the Iranian government. And for that reason, you know, you mentioned that the Monir Museum opened in 2018. That's kind of an, that was an unprecedented thing. The first solo artist museum in Iran dedicated to a woman. So I think she was respected for her work, that there was not necessarily a political edge to it. And while it referred to Sufi cosmology and Eastern mysticism, for her, it was really about form and mathematics and geometry and contemporary art. So we have a, a series of the last gallery in the exhibition includes a group of works from a series she titled Families. And the families are these wonderful sets of forms that correspond to the eight fundamental Euclidean forms from the triangle to the decagon. Each family has one of each. And again, they're mirror mosaics. And the mirror mosaics uh, correspond in terms of Sufism, in terms of one of the, the most important principles of Sufism, and that is unity and multiplicity. In other words, a Unitarian God in the universe. But for this artist, she understood that and respected that. But for her, because she was secular, that was really about the family, that the family represented unity and multiplicity. And, and I think for that reason, she called her work families instead of bodies of work like we do here in the West. Oh, it's just beautiful. Michael, outstanding among the works on display are Farman Farmian's heartache boxes. Would you describe these and the story they reveal about the artist's inner life? The heartache boxes are these assemblage works. They're collaged boxes. They are reminiscent of other works by Western artists, and, and I'm reluctant to compare them to the work of male Western artists, but if you think of Cornell boxes, for example, there are these wonderful little microcosms for Monier Fana Fermian of her life and the memories of her family and of her childhood. And she began making them in 1998. Her husband had died in 91. His name was Abel Bashar Farman Fermian. And that was one of the last big losses in her life. When the Farman Fermians were exiled in the United States in 1979, they lost everything they had, their wealth, their homes, her studio and all the work she made in Iran, the collections that she had amassed of indigenous art forms. And so in 1991, when her husband died, I think that led her to reflect on her first half of her life. And these heartache boxes represent, in a way, diaries, almost diaristic, in how they contain these moments from her, her family life, her childhood, 
her career, one of the boxes includes specific references to commissions that she received from the UN, for example, for a stained glass window, uh, in addition to another commission in Holland for a set of stained glass windows. So she's reflecting on her life and career at this moment in 1998, perhaps not knowing that she could ever return to Iran. So it was a way of, again, this kind of resistance to forgetting her life and all the important things to her in her life. High Museum Curator of Modern and Contemporary Art, Michael Rooks. Monir Farman Farmian, a mirror garden, is on view at the High through April 9th. More information about the exhibition is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Before YouTube and online video streaming platforms, there was MTV, music television. The channel revolutionized the way we viewed music and expanded the music industry in an entirely new way. Tabitha Soren was a popular reporter for MTV in the 1990s. The former journalist has since pivoted from news to photography and gained artistic recognition. When Soren brought her exhibition, Surface Tension, to Atlanta this past September, the photographer sat down with City Lights producer Summer Evans over Zoom to discuss her body of work. During your time at MTV News, you got to interview some renowned musicians as well as politicians. And when I was doing my research, I came across the MTV segment that you did on the Seattle grunge music scene in the 1990s. Oh my gosh, I mean, you got to interview Soundgarden and Nirvana and... I mean, anybody that was coming out of Seattle at the time, it was incredible to watch. And you guys even talked about the history of how Seattle music has been around with Jimi Hendrix. And you got to talk to Jimi Hendrix's father, which was really cool. <laughs> I, I have so little memory of any of that, but I'm glad that I'm glad that you're impressed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, so does that feel like a lifetime ago? It feels like my, you know, my first career. I, I was a cub reporter. And I was a perfect person to talk to 20-year-old musicians because I was 20 years old. I had a very straight news background. So when I was sent to talk to politicians, I, did, I didn't have a ton of experience because I was only 24, but I had been working at, in journalism since I was 18. I went to NYU specifically to be in the media. I knew what I wanted to do from the get-go. And so as soon as I got there, I started working at CNN when I wasn't in class. I really loved the mix of music and politics. I think that most people are interested in more than one thing. And I understand the benefits of having a beat as a journalist and becoming a, a very deep expert in a particular topic. But I also felt like as a job, 
when I got tired of politicians giving me the runaround and not giving me a straight answer or quite often just straight out lying. It was really fun. It was a nice antidote mentally to go and talk to musicians, which often, you know, they weren't exactly super articulate about their music or, you know, sometimes with art, it's really hard to put into words. There was definitely effort when I was interviewing musicians as well, but it was a nice balance of two things I felt very passionately about politics and music. And I still feel passionately about both of those. Mm -hmm. And you were very instrumental in shaping and pushing MTV News to focus on youth issues and more serious topics, correct? I was instrumental in having MTV turn their attention to politics. It wasn't the first time they had done so. I think maybe four years before I started, they ran a person for president as sort of a spoof, but his name was Randy of the Redwoods. It's this amazing comedic actor named Jim Turner. And he was just like so, so funny. But I think MTV had such a great response to their political coverage because we treated the audience with a lot of respect. And within every issue, there is a slice of it that appeals very directly and affects very directly 18 to 24 year olds. Mm -hmm. So I was able to go deeper than perhaps when I did a piece for the Today Show, I had to appeal to people my age, plus the normal Today Show watchers, which, you know, go up to like age 75. I felt like my reports for the more mainstream media were kind of watered down and they didn't really allow my personality or point of view to come through. Whereas MTV, it was just like a very easy fit. And my enthusiasm and my natural connection to the audience because of my age, you know, just generated an authenticity that I felt people responded to. Yeah. And it's crazy to think how different MTV is now. I just went on their website before this interview and it's all reality TV. And I mean, they cut back on showing music to nothing now. I have been told that it's all reality TV and they definitely were on the cutting edge of that whole trend. However, I think it's silly to blame, you know, the man, the corporation of MTV for reality TV covering their channel because it's the audience that determines mm-hmm. who what they what they air so if the audience wasn't watching reality tv it would not be the entire channel it's a very inexpensive approach to making content for a channel as i'm sure you know so i i just laugh when people complain to me about it not having music anymore because the people who aren't complaining are watching that reality tv <laughs> so i would say that I, I One thing I was always very impressed by at MTV was their ability to react nimbly mm-hmm. to what the audience wanted. They really pivoted quite a bit. We had constant big meetings about, you know, annual meetings about, they would call them light switch meetings where they were going to turn off the lights and start something new. And that was because of some, you know, marketing research or something that the audience decided that they wanted. and and. It was such a big company, in my opinion, but it also was incredibly receptive to what the audience wanted. Yeah, no, they perfectly pivoted. And who knows, maybe they'll change the name from music television to reality television. It'll be RTV. You would think. <laughs> That's a good point, actually. Yeah. 
well, well I guess they, I guess they just assume that people refer to it as MTV and forget what the M stands right <laughs> we we still know <laughs> so, <laughs> so at what point in your career did you decide to pivot from journalism and news into photography well that is a great question so when I finished covering my second presidential campaign in 1996 for MTV, I was very burnt out and I was awarded a fellowship at Stanford University. I went there for a year and theoretically I was supposed to become a better journalist while I was there, but instead I fell in love with photography and art history. And I spent all my time in the dark room. And I thought I, when I went there that I would join sort of the documentary world. I wanted to tell longer stories. I wanted to dive deeper and get into more complicated issues like, like every single other journalist on the planet. And um, then I met all of those documentarians in the Bay Area and they all told me about how much time they spend getting grants. And if they're lucky, they get you know 15 people at a film festival watching their work. <laughs> And I just thought, wow, that that seems crazy. If I'm going to have no audience, I'd rather just deal with one frame at a time. So in my mind, it didn't it wasn't a huge transition for the work that I was doing because I was shooting 30 frames a second and I just decided to shoot one at a time. Obviously, the public aspect to it was very different. But in fact, I think that I'm quite an introvert and I just had this skill set that I had developed from being in a military family, growing up, moving around all the time and telling my story to new people and learning their stories to try to fit in. And that made a very good reporter. But I didn't really have time till I was older to figure out if I was actually somebody who wanted to be recognized on the street and wanted to talk to strangers and wanted to deal with the people who assumed that they know who I am and what I care about based on something they saw on television. So I realize it's almost un-American to take yourself off TV, but for me, it was emotionally the right thing. And now you're telling stories through photographs, a different medium, but still a lot of the same skill sets that you need in journalism, but as a photographer. Yes. You know, Summer, I think you're one of the few people who can understand easily the two things meet. I th the fine art world is very different from uh, the journalism world, but I have over time, I've been doing this now for 15 years, over time I have found the people in the art world who are my people. They're often art historians or museum curators or academics. Um, there is a very fancy sort of uh, art fair world. And that's, that's the one that is the most trying for me. And it's the most exhausting. But what I love about working with photography is that the gray areas of life, the complexity that surrounds us, the nuance, all of that stuff, I wasn't really able to fit into a who, what, when, where, and why two minute mm -hmm. journalism report. Photography allows me to include the gray area, the, the parts that don't have a yes or no answer. And um, it's also an invitation, you know, I don't determine how the piece is interpreted. I'm not telling people what the facts are. I'm presenting an image and hoping that they are invited to figure out like how they intersect with this meaning. Most of my work is 
you know, it includes metaphor and is about more than just the precise moment that I hit the shutter. I'm not a documentarian. I very rarely do just straight photography. There are a lot of people who do that really well, but that's not really my work. I'm much more interested in the sublime and having my work be a model of experience rather than a reflection of a particular event. Mm. Well, let's talk about this exhibition, Surface Tension, that's on view at Jackson Fine Art Gallery. There's three collections that are on view within this exhibit, and one of those is Surface Tension. What inspired this one in particular? Well, I would say that this exhibit is so exciting to me because it does have three bodies of work in it. That rarely happens in a gallery. And really, that was um, Anna and Coco at Jackson Fine Arts idea. They felt like they could fill the entire space with my work. In each body of work, I'm trying to visualize a psychological state. And they often are sort of um, supported by a lot of research and studies and the the things that I, the sort of methodological investigative tools that I use during my time in journalism. But the end result, the, the visual and the process is quite different for each body of work. It would be tough to put them all in one room, but the way the gallery at Jackson Fine Art is, as you probably know, is that there are three separate rooms. So they, they're not going to com- be competing with each other. I thought that was a great idea and it's never happened with my work before. And it's so exciting. I spent half my childhood in the South and I've never shown my work there. So the high museum just acquired two pieces, but they haven't been shown yet. I mean, it's, I'm excited about that as well. I love the the idea of being part of their collection, but to have people who I grew up with be able to come to the show is very exciting. Yeah. Well, we're happy to have you in Atlanta. I'm going back to the surface tension collection. So these are images with fingerprints that are left on top of the photos that you've taken. And what most people usually loathe about leaving fingerprints on their iPhone or iPad, you embraced it with these photos. And um, it's funny, as I look at this Zoom screen right now, I'm kind of forgetting that there are fingerprints on my computer. And your eye just doesn't really analyze it until maybe you get a glare or it's a dark room, you turn off your monitor, you know, and you kind of see it coming through. Why did you want the audience to both see the fingerprints and the photos simultaneously rather than seeing through the fingerprints? For surface tension, I was very interested in what the fingerprints represented. Traces of touch are all over our devices. And so in my mind, they're not just fingerprints, they're signs of life. I guess I am guilty of, I'm I'm assuming there might be other people listening who are also feel ambivalent about this, but how much time am I spending touching my devices instead of my loved ones? Mm. I really do feel like there is an opportunity cost to scrolling through these feeds for social media, I guess. Even if you're not on social media, though, you live in the world that these devices have created. So I feel like surface tension really captures the atmosphere of our time. No, it definitely made me think, I'm like, wow, I spend way too much time on my phone looking at the world and the news that's happening and not really, you know, living in the world as much as I could be. It's like when we feel sorry for these causes that are happening internationally, 
you know, other than a like button, what are you doing to help the community in the world that you live in instead of just through the medium of a phone? I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think that these devices have us on our best days think about the way care fights distance. So technology amplifies these feelings about the floods in India and global warming and the fires in California and you know extreme police force against black and brown people. But is our soul and heart really set up for this barrage every single morning of all of those things? Are we really set up to absorb every single solitary bad thing that's happened in the world overnight? I feel like I wake up and the day seems like a great day and then I open my phone. (laughs) And then all bets are off. I'm not anti-technology, but it does make you feel like there's this joyless urgency in our day-to-day lives because of it. Mm -hmm. No, it makes you think, are we meant to be inundated with this much information on a day-to-day basis? And that's why a lot of people take technology breaks, you know, from social media or just from their phone. And I understand that. Me too. Photographer and former journalist Tabitha Soren speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. We'll be back with more of their conversation in just a moment. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Let's return now to City Lights producer Summer Evans and her conversation with photographer and former journalist Tabitha Soren. The interview was recorded this past September when Soren brought her exhibition surface tension to Atlanta. The photos reveal the smudges and fingerprints on our electronic devices as a map to where we've been and what we've done. Here, the artist explains how she avoided glare while photographing screens. So I was shooting using a 19th century technology called a view camera. And it really was the best way to record all the tiny 21st century details on my screen. 
all of these details when I, I blow them up really large so that even the things that eyes can't see in real life are visible. And I also had the fortunate coincidence to have my son going through puberty at the same time I was working on it. So his hands, when he used my iPad, got very sweaty and that really helped the light grab those shiny, glistening parts. As once the show opens, you'll see that the scale in this case is really important. The other reason I used the view camera was not only to have an eight by 10 inch negative to work with, which allows you, if I do get a hot spot or a glare, to crop a little of it out and then make it, you know, the image is still basically very huge negative, but it's kind of, I, I liked the, the friction between the 19th century technology, analog photography and, and the latest technology of, of the iPad. I feel like it's important to remember that when photography came into the world, it was viewed with terrible skepticism and it was accused of weaving fictions about individual lives and historical events and obviously you know the internet and technology is uh slapped with the same reputation so mm-hmm. i liked that parallel yeah definitely and for those unfamiliar with the view camera that's one of those large format cameras that kind of inverts the image that you're seeing I bet most people are familiar with the picture of Ansel Adams or Carlton Watkins Mm -hmm. underneath a black cover and a big boxy camera. It's the size of, you know, someone's head basically, but Mm -hmm. there's nothing fancy about it. It's not, it doesn't make me a genius having used it. (laughs) It's just about whether that process or that technology serves the work. And in this case, it really allowed me to have much more surface area to blow up than a phone. And I should say that all the pictures are uh, appropriated. All the background pictures are appropriated. And I was reshooting that background with fingerprints on my view camera. So there's, there's no layering or, you know, obviously like there's Mm -hmm. some Photoshopping happening because it's a digital print. So there's always adjustments you have to make, but it's a very simple process. Mm -hmm. And that that was a question I had was, were these photos that you took and then you had them up on an iPad and then took a photo of your photo or? They are all screenshots of images that were sent to me either by text or email, or they came up in one of my social media feeds or my news feeds or, you know, people sharing their vacation photos with me. And I, of course, would always ask permission to use them if it's somebody I know, or I would track the person down that, again, brought in my reportorial skills (laughs) of trying to, you know, reverse engineer where this came from. And sometimes they were professional photographers. And in those cases, I bought the license from Getty or Reuters or AP or Mm -hmm. wherever they came from. I would say the majority of them are people that I interacted with personally. One of the very early images was sent to me from downstairs in my house from my daughter who was too lazy to walk up the stairs to kiss me goodnight or she thought it'd be clever if she just blew a kiss into her ipad snapped a photo of it and then texted it to me upstairs so when i got that to me i was starting this process and i was learning all about the importance of touch and the cognitive Mm -hmm. impairment that these phones create and of course i'm struggling with my children using uh, devices more than I want them to be. Mm-hmm. But then I don't get a good night kiss. Like that just <laughs> seemed like beyond the pale. So at that point I marched downstairs, but at yeah. the same time, she gave me such a beautiful gift, you know, that 
that picture is so successful of her blowing a kiss to me mm. and whatever the, the motions over the image were, I, I'm not, I don't really remember who used the iPad to create the fingerprints, but they look like bubbles. And so the fact that she's blowing me a kiss uh -huh. and then there are all these bubbles over the top of it, I just was, I felt like that was a gift from the art gods. Mm. That was actually my first thought. I had to look at the photo twice to see, oh, are those bubbles like edited in there? But then I noticed, oh no, they're fingerprints. But that's such a sweet image. So that's your daughter. I love that. My lazy daughter. <laughs> So these photos span from 2013 to 2021. When you were selecting the photos that you wanted to have in this exhibition, were they emblematic of the times? Because I saw like there were some protest photos from 2020 and 2021, photo of a glacier in 2019. Is that symbolic of like global warming? It can be. It's a, it's a vacation shot from somebody who's on a boat off the coast of Chile, which, and those glaciers are melting, but it's also an example of, I think something I'm guilty of too, is, you know, saving up money to go to a beautiful place and then spending all my time behind a lens instead of like having a direct experience. I feel like we have gotten used to mediated experiences and that picture of the glacier on vacation seems that way to me, but it's also very much about global warming and that's how most people interpret it. In terms of which images ended up at Jackson Fine Art, I would say that Coco and Anna were the real drivers of those selections. So it's hard for me to have a hands-off approach and I definitely lobbied for certain pictures versus others, but there are so many to choose from with surface tension that it's I'm happy that you know new images are going to be seen. And in this case, some of their choices are not the ones that I've been showing lately. So that's exciting. There is also another body of work that I wanted to talk about. What inspired your collection, Relief? And how did you make these photographs distressed and look 3D? Relief is a body of work that has never been shown before. So its debut is at Jackson Fine Art next week. And I'm so excited about it. Honestly, it goes against almost everything I've been taught in photography. Certainly, you spend a lot of time handling your art in a very pristine way. I use white gloves. I pick the pieces up by the corner. You don't want them dinged. When I make gelatin silver prints, you know, I make sure that they are archival and that they sit in the chemicals for the perfect amount of time. And sometimes they're selenium tones, so they'll last, you know, even longer and all of a sudden, I found myself with a hammer and a nail and a pellet gun shooting holes through <laughs> beautiful <laughs> landscapes and portraits. It just seemed really strange. But I think my interest in distressing the photos was directly connected to my previous body of work, which we just discussed, called surface tension. So mm -hmm. I, I, I had a screen um, I had a surface on top of those background images, that surface of the haptic language of the fingerprints. And all of that information that I researched about technology creating cognitive impairment made me want to get away from the computer and do something with my hands. And the result is relief. So I carve these pieces, I burn them, 
I blast them with a pellet gun. I paint on some of them. I'm trying to create tactile interventions in the photograph surface. So surface tension had a surface created by fingerprints on top of that device. But in this case, I'm actually changing the surface of the paper. And what does that require? That requires a paper that's super, super thick. So I'm taking traditional images of landscapes and portraits and trying to violate the representational spirit of photography. You know, I do think that life is more complicated than black and white. And I think that um, when you look at a photograph, it's natural to go, well, who is that? And what is that? And where are mm. they? But what I would like to do with these interventions is get in the way of that thinking and have people explore what's beyond visible truth. Well, I believe that you've done a beautiful job at that. Another body of work that I wanted to touch upon is your collection running. How did you prompt these subjects? Because I read that they weren't models. No, um, no, no. How, how did you prompt them? That is a really good question. You know, I would say for the running work, I asked the people who were not, they were not athletes, runners, or models. And they didn't have to run for a really long time. They just had to sort of do wind sprints because I could only focus on a particular part of the frame. Mm -hmm. And I started out shooting film, so it was even harder back then. But I asked the runners to think about a big challenge in their life, a turning point, something where they felt like they had they might have a little control over the situation and, and try to run to something or run away from something. But I would say that I'm not a director and that my instructions really didn't help them. I think mainly what they were thinking about was not falling. Although when they did fall, that made a great pace too. Mm -hmm. um, because I, the, the work started out to be about the fight or flight response, but really, um, it's, it's also about, you know, you know, falling down and picking yourself up and continuing on. And that's timeless. That's a, you know, an everyday pursuit for most of us. So I think that what was, what I didn't expect was that my direction to them wasn't going to be all that useful, but the lack of self-consciousness that is created in the subject by having to do this running motion over and over and over again until the dumb photographer gets it right, really allowed them to relax in front of the camera and forget they were having their picture taken, if you will. A model, it would have been faster. They would have been you know, more obviously natural in front of the camera than the people I used. But I'm not really interested in any sort of ideal beauty. Mm-hmm. Well, and you can really feel the authenticity. I mean, these photos range from people looking scared for their lives versus determination, even like inquisitive. And one that really struck me, and I don't know if you meant to do this, but was the man running towards the camera in New York and he's looking up and you see behind him, it says Manhattan Business Center. And I just thought, oh my gosh, is this a photo from 9-11? But the people in the background are just kind of walking leisurely, not really paying attention. But I, that was my first thought when I saw it. So it's just a wide range that you have uh, just by telling people to run. It gives me such pleasure to hear someone unpack a photograph that I made like that. I really do feel like the body of work in general is about internal struggle. 
yet they do pull things out of people's memory. That's what I was saying earlier about it being mm-hmm. an invitation. It's not the first time I've heard that the picture of my friend Dave conjures up 9-11, but I think the emotional response to it is about really processing what we all manage to survive and what we don't. And I think that the dark and moody, messy and anxious states shown in my work, they kind of bring these emotions to the surface. And, and in doing that, maybe, hopefully, they make all these things more normal. Photographer and former journalist Tabitha Soren, speaking with City Lights producer Summer Evans. You can see pictures from her surface tension exhibition on her website, tabithasoren.com. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., the producer and director behind WABE-TV's new series, Intersection, ponders the gentrification of Atlanta. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.